Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. I got a big surprise for you this morning. May I present you the king of rock and roll. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. One of the themes you'll hear us talking about frequently here at True Tunes is the idea of listening to better music and listening to music better. One of the aspects of great music, and one that seems to be missing for much of it today, is its power to enchant us, to charm us, to welcome us into a beautiful space. We might think about what music can accomplish, what it can do, either about delivering a particular message or establishing a career for us as artists, but we neglect to first approach it as an art. We miss the power that it has to create space, for dreams to form, for reflection, for vision, and even for community. And friends, I'm really excited about today's conversation. In fact, last year when I sat down and sketched out the first few folks I wanted to talk to for this podcast, Ian Fitchuk was right at the top of the list. Ian is a songwriter and producer here in Nashville who has become a go-to ace in the hole for artists looking for a certain soulful, laid-back, genre-bending sound. Although he's no one-trick pony, Ian's work does have a certain enchanting quality to it that's been called upon by some of my favorite artists. Mindy Smith, Jeremy Lester, Robert Ellis, Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors, Griffin House, Money Magnolias, and even Amy Grant have all enlisted Ian's help over the last decade. There's something about his work that often just makes me want to sit back, relax, and listen. In the last couple of years, Ian has broken through in a big way as a co-writer and co-producer with both Marin Morris and Casey Musgraves, two artists who have taken country music into some very new places. I've been going down a road that's a little too Ian and I got to know each other years ago when I was working at Capital CMG Publishing and he was writing with and producing Kate York, a writer and artist I had signed and who is now a member of his Skyline Motel band. He had a certain kind of hippie spirit that I related to right away and he was also a fellow Chicago expat and a long-suffering Bears fan so we had that to commiserate over as well. We even attended the same church for a while and have been living in the same part of East Nashville for over a decade. 
I was particularly keen to get Ian on the show because I had a feeling he would have some important things to say to the students I get to work with at Trevecca University's School of Music and Worship Arts. I created a series of events at Trevecca that I dubbed Music City Colloquies, where artists, producers, and other industry leaders come to the campus to speak to the students. The plan was to get Ian to come to the school, have that conversation, and then record it for you all to hear too. He quickly agreed, but then a few things happened. First, Ian happened to have one of the biggest years of his career in 2019, when Golden Hour, the album he co-wrote and co-produced for Casey Musgraves, absolutely blew up. It won four Grammy Awards, every one that it was nominated for. For, including Album of the Year, Country Album of the Year, Best Country Song, and Best Country Solo Performance. It also won Album of the Year at the CMA Awards and the ACM Awards. Oh, and Ian won awards for his musicianship and production skills to boot. You're my velvet Elvis. I ain't never gonna take you down, making everybody jealous. When you step into my house, soft to the touch, feels like love. So while he was willing, it was hard to find time. Then when the coronavirus grounded us all, I got an idea. Although he was still working at his home studio, Ian had a bit more time than usual. All of our events at Trevecca had to be canceled this spring, and I've been wanting something encouraging and inspirational to send to all of the recent graduates and all those young artists still in school trying to figure out how to make things work. So I asked Ian if we could record this conversation one recent evening, and he agreed. Even though we were in quarantine and it seemed crazy to be doing an interview online when I could jog to his house from mine, the shutdown offered us both an opportunity and we took it. Now, you're going to hear lots of ambient sounds on my end of the conversation. The only relatively quiet place I could find was actually outside my house, so you'll get to hear all the natural ambience of my East Nashville yard. Birds, dogs, revving engines and all. Hopefully that just adds to the vibe for you and isn't too distracting. So let's walk out to the deck and hang out on the computer with producer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist Ian Fitchuk. First, I just wanted to find out a little bit about your background, your history, kind of your musical training, and what did you do to prepare yourself? Uh, but let's start with maybe a memory. Do you remember some early music that you heard or experiences that you had where that enchanted you and made you say, oh my gosh, like I have got to do this. Like I have got to put my hand to an instrument and create music because I want to have this kind of effect on people that this moment is having on me. The earliest memories that I have were just playing along with the music that was on in the house. My parents got me kind of the pots and pans situation and I would um, play along and just jam. I, at that point, that was so early on, I don't remember what music was actually being played, but there's photographs of me sitting in the, looking out the window with a set of pots and pans and an old radio um, and just kind of playing along and just resonating with that. Apparently also, my parents tell me that when I was young, we would drive past the church and I would always ask about the organ. I was really fixated on the organ and I ha always had a lot of questions about that. And um, my first real musical memories are of my parents playing music in the house, which was for my mom, the flute, and for my dad was the viola. And there's something when I think about it now about listening back and hearing music from another room in the house that has some kind of 
magical quality to me, to me where you're not necessarily participating in a concert or actively listening to uh, some music that you want to listen to, but there's just music flowing through the house in a, in a very natural way that I look back on now and realize what a gift that was. And anytime I hear the sound of like flute music, especially um, I'm transported back to hearing my mom teaching students in her office downstairs. And, um, and then of course, you know, growing up in the church, that was such a formative moment for me to, to realize the aspects of music that are in my, in, in my opinion, my favorite aspects, which is just community and listening and uh, the idea of kind of bringing people together. Uh, that was something that from a very young age, music was the language that tied me together with people in our congregation that I didn't necessarily understand what I had in common with. And even like theologically and stuff like that, at that point, I didn't really know what I believed. Obviously, I was just a kid, but I but I knew that music was this um, connective tissue that felt real and felt trustworthy to me. Those were kind of the, the, the bottom layers, you know, just hearing music in the house, hearing music at church and around the house, like my parents primarily listened to classical music and in the car, that was what they um, tended to listen to. And one day I remember I was probably in fourth or fifth grade but I found a copy of Paul Simon's uh, Graceland in the house. And I still, when I ask my parents about it to this day, they have no idea how it ended up there. Like they don't know how or why, but it was there. And I had, you know, a little disc man at the time and would carry it around with me wherever I went. And I just, and I had a paper route at that time. So I would very carefully, as you know, with the disc man, it would skip very easily. Right. <laughs> I would very carefully uh, level that in my hand and have this newspaper um, bag slung over my other arm and I would go and do my paper route and listen to that. And that, that was when I first started to hear and see not only adult images, but also images from the, the, the wider world of music. I mean, obviously that album was like, and he's been criticized for it as well, but there were some good or bad, however you want to look at it, some appropriation of uh, African music and folk music and pop music all melded into one. And that that just, that, I guess, kind of opened my, my brain, my consciousness to um, the cosmic nature of music, which is that there's all these bits and pieces, all these fractals floating around and to each individual, they come in different ways and like everybody comes from a, such a mixed bag musically for the most part um, that that it just resonated with me that there was this music that I was hearing that I couldn't quite understand or relate to lyrically because there are there's some you know at that age there were a lot of adult themes and a lot of like kind of vague backdrops um, lyrically but but it all felt so tangible and so visceral. And I wanted to know what that was all about. And I wanted to know why um, the songs didn't just feel like verse and chorus that felt like there were stories and and there was imagination and there were, there were people making music together that brought their lives and their influences together in a combustible, if you will, way that was enthralling to me, you know? Um, and that was at a time where a lot of my friends were listening to 
Well, that was right before grunge hit. It was right before middle school that I heard all that. So I don't know what everybody was listening to in elementary school um, in the early 90s. Yeah, that's kind of where the, that's the foundation. That's the beginning. When I was 16 or so, just before I turned 17, I had uh, surgery and I was I was out for several days, couldn't couldn't really move. Um, somebody had gotten me a cassette Walkman with auto reverse, so the tape would just flip over, you know. Yeah. And they put Joshua Tree on one side of a hundred minute cassette and Paul Simon's Graceland on the other. And so those two albums would just alternate. And so I listened to those two albums nonstop, 24-7, for close to a week. That was the first time I remember being able to just, and actually needing to just focus and noticing the textures and the layers and all the backing vocals and all that stuff and thinking, oh my gosh, making a record is a whole different thing than just playing a song. Yeah, I mean, back then it was, it's, you didn't have as much to look at. So the theater was in your, was in your ears. And right. I remember like really associating or creating these images, listening to not just Graceland, but all the music of, that I was listening to at that time and trying to imagine the scenario in which it came from. And, and now, yeah, I think that's still possible, but there's so many other, it, we've got so many things in front of our, our faces that uh, I, I, I can't help but think that maybe hinders that process or that experience a little bit. So you, um, you started studying one instrument as a kid or did you study different instruments from a young age? Um, I primarily studied uh, piano from from early on. I did a little bit of Suzuki violin when I was very young, but that didn't. That was kind of a brief thing. And then I studied piano from the time I was, I don't know, five or six until uh, the end of high school. I wanted to quit in high school, but my parents were like, "No, you're you're gonna you're gonna keep going." And along the way, I kind of taught myself guitar, and um, I took a few lessons on drums, but I primarily just learned drums kind of through playing in church and playing in bands in, in junior high. But then I really wanted, I came to Nashville because, not, not because of country music, but I knew of Belmont University through somebody I'd gone to high school with in Wheaton. And when I came to visit, uh, I had a lot of other mus music schools on my radar, uh, University of Miami and North Texas and a couple others. But I came down and I met um, this professor at Belmont that I thought was going to be my just jazz guru. I really wanted to learn jazz. Um, and it would seem ironic that you would come to Nashville to learn jazz, but um, I was very, I just connected with him and felt like country music aside, I was just like, this is a guy I need to be with. And that's how I ended up in Nashville. That was 20 years ago this August. Wow. And so you went to Belmont and studied jazz at Belmont, and it was, 
did you expand the instruments that you were approaching at that point at Belmont or did you stick to piano? <laughs> I, uh, I dropped out in the middle of the first semester. Oh, because you joined a band. You joined a band called Llama, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, the first week that I was in Nashville, I met some kids that had a record deal. And of course, to me, that was like, that was that was the impossible. That was just like I never knew anyone that had a major label record deal, and I thought that was so cool. And we started hanging out. They didn't have a keyboard player in the band at the time, but we just spent a lot of time together, jamming. And um, they're like, "You should come on the road with us." and all of my music professors were like, you should go on the road with them. And my parents, really? yeah, my parents were like, you can do that, but you're on your own. Like, we're not going to, they were helping me out with college. But as soon as I decided that I was going to um, leave, I was on my own um, and I was 18. So that was, that was pretty, pretty immediate. And then that was relatively short lived, the band thing. Yeah. I mean, I toured for a year and a half or two and I just realized like, it wasn't a lot of music. It was a lot of traveling. And at that time, obviously like people weren't making albums on their, on their laptops. So it was, you were relegated to, um, you know, your Discman and I had some books, but I wasn't very productive in the in-between times. And I had my very first relationship, uh, that I'd ever been in that I was like with this, with this girl. And it wasn't a good dynamic of like trying to be in your first relationship ever and being gone most of the year was just too hard. So I left after a year and a half. And at that point, I didn't know what to do. I had no plan. I just didn't, I just knew that touring with that band was not what I wanted to do. Didn't know what my options were with music. So I actually re-enrolled at Belmont part-time as a theology major uh, for a semester. Um, and in that time, I started working with Josh Moore, who had come up through Houston with Cademan's Call and um, he was like 19 at the time and had had like substantial radio success and EMI was hiring him a lot as a producer and he had all these projects that he was working on as a producer and I didn't at that point I, I had kind of a concept of what a producer did but but not really um, and he had some projects that he brought me in and allowed me to kind of hang out and facilitate and help him with and pretty soon he was too busy to deal with all of it and started kind of handing me off um, some of these projects and that was around 2003 or four right around the time that I met Griffin House and that was the first artist that I really uh, I guess produced I didn't know that that's what I was doing at the time but we just became friends and recorded a few songs and decorated it a little bit and next thing you know he had like a, a, a whole music business team around him and I was like and I was getting paid and I was like oh I, I guess I guess this is something that I can do like if this is if I if I can be paid to do this I should look more into this <laughs> somewhere east of Eden when I'm buried in the ground I'll be singing like a guardian angel looking down Let 
So tell me something, because you mentioned that you were studying theology. Did your did your faith, you know, between the you mentioned a couple times now that you you were playing music in church up in Chicago, and then you went to Belmont. Then you said you go you went back and you were you were studying theology, and then you were working with a producer who was at least somewhat working in Christian music a little yeah. bit. How did your how was your faith and your understanding of of theology kind of speaking into how you saw what music could or should be and what your role might possibly be in that um, as a creative person? You know, that's, that's a great question. It's, it's hard to say because I was experiencing so much at, at the same time. I was experiencing my first real heartbreak in the end of my first relationship. And I was experiencing the death of kind of a, a dream that I thought was about to come true with this band. I thought we were going to be playing for stadiums and be rich and famous, I thought. And I really was just also coming to terms with the fact that a lot of my upbringing and a lot of my faith had been related to pleasing um, the people that were most important to me, whether they were my parents or my teachers. I, you know, I went to a preparatory school for Wheaton College and um, a lot of incredible folks there. But, I, you know, in my early 20s, I started to realize, like, where am I in all of this? Am I... Am I um, Am I really experiencing all of this or am I kind of manifesting these ideas and these experiences so that I can feel respected by and, and, and accepted by these people in my life that want me to follow this certain path? And that, that would, and to be totally honest, here I am, you know, less than or just shy of 20 years and I'm still kind of wrestling through a lot of that it's it's uh it's it's still something that i'm trying to um trying to figure out there was a a difference in the tone of the music you were making the first time i heard it i was working at capitol and you were you and justin were producing mostly indie artists and bands and then you were writing stuff that was getting pitched for film and tv stuff and i remember one of the the artists that i had signed at capitol and was really excited about and she's an amazing writer was kate york and you guys working with kate and just hearing those songs and thinking my whole my whole career since i was a kid one of the one of the overarching themes you could see was that I never liked this idea that Christian music should be somehow separated from everything else. If anything, it should be leading the way in terms of beauty. And it had developed so often this kind of separate code language and even sonic language. And then I heard what you guys were doing and I thought, oh, wow, like this even sonically has a winsomeness to it. It has this invitational, relaxed tone to it. Tell me about kind of how your sound and your style was evolving as you were coming out of the band and you were getting your feet under yourself as a as an artist and as a producer. Where was that style coming from? Because it definitely had its own thing about it. There was a chill. It's, it, it's, hard, it's hard for me to answer that question because 
my, and I'm experiencing this, especially right now um, during this quarantine is that I associate a lot of my history and my path with the people that have been alongside me for particular seasons. And during that season of time, I was spending a lot of time with Justin Laux. I was spending a lot of time with Kate. I was spending time with people like Ed Cash and Bethany Dillon. And I had this, and I was being exposed to the world of Tommy Sims. And I was just, I was just a sponge. And I really, if anything, kind of over the years have learned to be a facilitator and to know, to look at a situation musically and say, where can I fit in the cracks? Like I don't walk into a situation and say, this is my, this is my vision. This is what I'm going to do. This is how you're going to serve it. This is how you're going to do this. I really show up and say, what are we working with already? What, what is this situation providing itself with already? And what can I do to push that forward? So when I think about that part of my life, I think about just the influence that people were having over me as opposed to the influence that I, or the voice that I was finding for myself. And I look at all the things that I was learning from Josh Moore, who had been making albums for longer than I had been, um, from Justin, who had a lot more knowledge in terms of uh, mixing and engineering, which is still a mess, mystery to me. But um, I, I don't know. I guess, like, I'm trying to hold up a mirror to people that I'm working with and say like, this is, this is who you are. I'm not trying to change people. I'm not trying to, I don't always have like a, an idea in mind in terms of like what our end result is. I'm just trying to be there momentarily for the people that I'm working with. And I guess along the way, there are certain patterns like people like yourself may pick up on like, Oh, I see you. And I identify you with a certain sound or a certain kind of atmosphere around the things that you work on. But it's hard for me to see it that way because every situation is decorated in my mind by the people that I shared it with. And when people identify me with Casey, like that's a natural um, association. But but really, there's so many other factors. There's, there's so many other particles and the way that that all came together that I don't feel like it's just, it's not just me, obviously it's, um, it's the right time. It's, it's, um, convening of people's lives at the right time that <laughs> connect. I, I don't know. It's, that's a, that's a hard question to answer. I think that, um, the temptation when we're faced with complicated questions is to reduce them to simplistic answers and especially uh, young people don't need simplistic answers they need honest answers and if that means I can't answer that but here I'm gonna I'm gonna meander a little bit and give you some poetry and then you're gonna have to figure this out <laughs> that's the truth yeah so that was a good answer that was a good answer you can climb a mountain and reach the top alone you can
thinking about the path that you have been able to carve out for yourself, what kind of advice would you give to a student who is either still in school? Let's, let's first let's say this: a student who is still in school. What kind of things should they be investing in themselves so that when they are no longer in school, they've got a reservoir to draw from that will make them valuable to other people? What are some key things that they should be investing in? I think I think the ultimate one is knowing how to cultivate your own creativity. Um, that the habit of of creativity, and I think that there's this danger sometimes of saying. I'm gonna wait until inspiration strikes, or I'm gonna like, I'll get to that song as soon as like, it it just strikes me like a lightning bolt. And I think what I've learned is that it's you have to. There's a habit that you need to create, regardless of the outcome, just for creativity to be a normal part of your of your life. Um, and that's actually something that's been kind of really relevant for me now because at the beginning of this year I, I on my vision board i said too much of my time is spent accounted for meaning every day on my calendar i'm like supposed to be writing with somebody or i have a project that has a deadline or i have you know there's objectives behind all of my creativity and i had really lost the spirit of exploration and it turns out it's hard to reinstate that in your life especially at my age, like almost 40 and I have kids and like there's a lot going on to create that space in your life that feels dedicated to, it's not success or failure, it's just exploring. I think is really important at a young age to forget the assignment, forget the goal and, and embrace the feeling actually of not knowing where you're headed, but just going with it and exploring. I think that's one, that's one important idea and the other would maybe be um collaboration obviously it's like take a look around and see who is next to you and and especially the people you think that you have the least in common with are oftentimes the people that are going to open the the, the widest lens for you people that that, ha that like all the same music that you do and speak the same language that you do it's just going to be this regurgitating cycle like Find people that are doing things that you don't understand and that you don't necessarily relate to. And it might not be about like perfecting what they do and it's not necessarily about introducing them to what you're doing, but finding common ground between different kind of creators, I think is a bridge that if you know how to like start to build those bridges along the way early on, that's something that carries you into a lifetime of creating with other people. Oh, that's great advice. Last year, you were nominated for, in the, it was at the ACMs or the CMAs, I always get them mixed up, but you were like bass player of the year, drummer of the year, keyboardist of the year, and then something like multi-instrumentalist or, or miscellaneous instrumentalist of the year. It was crazy, all, all in one year. Award things are, are tricky because there's there are a lot of po politics involved and... Um... The point is, what I was getting at is you, you have a broad range of skills that you're able to draw from. You obviously didn't just stay at the piano. It's what's interesting is I primarily thought of you as a drummer for some reason. I thought that was, I thought that was your main instrument. So, um, how do you uh, advise 
young artists to constantly be stretching and growing as musicians and even in terms of expanding their palette musically? How can they uh, be picking up new instruments and new genres and learning new styles that they might have thought that they weren't interested in? What that really makes me think of is the fact that like the interfaces and the DAWs the, uh, that we are working with now with, between Pro Tools, Ableton Live, and Logic, like it's never been more accessible to try to create sounds that you don't know how to create, like to make a beat and not be a drummer, to find a bass line and not be a bass player. Like it's never been more easy to find yourself in those sounds and in that process. And I think that my recommendation would be to start with GarageBand, start at the most basic thing and just find that joy of like, oh, I had this one idea and I put this other idea on top of it. And I didn't have it, what didn't become like this uh, complicated editing menagerie. It's just the spirit of kind of, oh, wow, like, I have all these limbs, I have all these kind of um, extensions of myself that can come together in a similar idea. And that's, that's amazing. I didn't have that when I was, when I was coming up. I mean, we had some digital recorders, but not, <laughs> not, like, like, have, <laughs> not like now. I mean, yeah, it's, it's the tools are there. And, and honestly, I'm behind, like I'm spending a lot of this time in quarantine, like because I've had the luxury of having engineers and editors and other musicians and a lot of other people on my team, I'm spending a lot of this time trying to facilitate those exercises on my own. And it's humbling for sure. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. Time to drop some coins in the True Tunes jukebox. Oh, how I feel for the sky Overused by poetry and rhymes It's in the sentence that follows We stayed up all night Oh, shouldn't it concern me That we shrink beauty to fit in our minds Don't have to listen to the whole song To know what's in the third line Tell me, should I should I feel fine about tossing the meaning for the sake of the rhyme? But aren't we good at turning beauty into cliche? I'm not sure exactly when Madison Cunningham first popped on my radar, but I do know that her 2019 EP, For the Sake of the Rhyme, stopped me in my tracks. That EP's opening track, Beauty into Clichés, felt like it could have been a theme song for my near 40-year search for music with meaning. But where in the world did this young woman, barely out of her teens, get access to sounds and ideas this deep? Was it a fluke? Did someone else write the songs? Who was playing that guitar with those tasty, complex tones? I put my finger on the pulse Just to make sure it's still beating But I don't know how I can console This tireless, terrible feeling Hurt you. I'm not an equation. You can just. 
It was her, all her, and as I sat in a pool of my own prejudices, she just kept writing and releasing music, single after single, often remixing and reinterpreting songs as she went, before eventually offering up a stunning full-length album called Who Are You Now in 2019. With the support of Verve Forecast Records, a division of Universal Music, and Red Light Management, she is poised to break through in a huge way. In fact, a recent Nashville show sold out so quickly I couldn't even get a single ticket. There's a song in my head, oh, a line that never stops playing. I'm not sure how it ends. I can't remember when I heard you were saying. Who Are You Now has the perfect opening song, Pin It Down, a track that lyrically and musically reflects the willingness Cunningham has to boldly defy genre boundaries, not to mention the expectations that the market often places on female artists. Over an irresistible guitar riff and groove, Cunningham's voice glides in, admitting that she can't quite put her finger on what she's feeling or searching for. The groove fits the dissatisfied lyric perfectly, and the vocal is beyond inviting, carrying references to Sheryl Crow's debut, but somehow digging into a deeper, more personal place. line for Cunningham is the intimate connection between her voice and what it is saying and how her guitar supports it. Her musical chops are impeccable. I mean, like, seriously impressive. Guitar nerds will have plenty to geek out over here. But what she does not do that so many artists of her skill set do is allow her dexterity to become a stumbling block to her songs. In that way, she deserves to be favorably compared to Joni Mitchell and Bruce Coburn. And there is such range here, from the rich, drum-free, almost torch-song jazz feel of Something to Believe In, 
to the double-time 6-8 pizzicato feel of L.A. looking alive, to the slow-burn rock pocket in Trouble Found Me. Cunningham stretches out, creating plenty of ambience, but giving each song a unique personality. Give me something good to do Write me a line to say Just give me someone I could be If I'm always standing in the way Just a paper doll Looking for a pair of scissors That won't cut me into something small But cut me free from the danger Sometimes I feel like quitting And making someone do my bidding You're laughing but I'm not kidding I feel like I'm gonna lose it God knows I didn't choose it Cunningham started out playing music in church. Though she has taken her craft well beyond the confines of a house of worship, it's clear that she retains a thoughtful, soulful perspective in her music that she brings with her wherever she performs. On her Spotify profile, she says that songwriting is something that is supposed to be as common as eating breakfast every day. Now, at just 22 years old and with this level of excellence as an instrumentalist, songwriter, and vocalist already in her grasp, I can't wait to see and hear what the future holds for her and us. Now, back to our interview with Ian Fitchuk, where Ian finds himself at the helm of one of the most critically acclaimed country albums of the past decade. You uh, somehow made your jump from darling of the indie, artsy, alternative kind of space to Grammy, ACM, CMA all in one year uh, by producing and writing on one of the biggest records last year with uh, Casey Musgraves. Tell me about this path that has led you to that, as well as the fact that you somehow managed to get all of that for a record that won country album of the year, and yet most of us listen to it and go, this is a country album? What have you learned in this in this journey uh, as well? Well, I made some records that I felt like I had poured everything that I knew how to pour <laughs> into, uh, pr precisely a Mindy Smith album called Stupid Love that, um, was a big opportunity for me at the time. And when we did all the work and we got to the finish line, it kind of felt to me like it got, it just disappeared. And that was a, that was a really difficult experience to kind of say, wow, like I'm really proud of this album and it's different and nobody heard it. <laughs> and I lived with that for, for a little while. And then I met, Actually, Marin and Casey, I met them both around the same time, and it turned out that they had heard that album, that they were really inspired by it. And that struck up kind of a common ground between um, both of us, and uh, or the both of them, I should say.
And so, you know, over the course of the next few years, like I was kind of always planting seeds with Casey, like I would love to get together, I'd love to create. Marin and I uh, did some things uh, pretty quickly. We wrote some songs and um, I was more a part of her musical journey for a moment. And then Casey had me come and play on her second record, Pageant Material, and they deleted everything that I did. Uh, <laughs> like almost. Like there was there were there were like nine people on the floor for that album and keyboards was just not it wasn't a vibe for that album. So like I, I really had no business being there. But that but that hurt, you know, like I mean I, I you go through those things where you're where you're like excited about an opportunity and then it just turns out to not be what you thought it was going to be. And I can't tell you how many times I've been down that road where you just get your heart broken. You just feel like I could have done this better or I thought it was going to go this way. I say all that because then, you know, Casey calls one day and she's like, let's write a song. And I knew that she had loved some of the things from Stupid Love from that Mindy Smith record, which Daniel Tashin had been a big part of. And I just knew that he, I just had this feeling that he could be a lyrical bridge. Well, not just a lyrical bridge, but he could be a really important component of how she wanted to express herself. And so I suggested that Daniel join us and we got together and we wrote, Oh, what a world. And, um, I remember feeling like, wow, this is everything <laughs> that I've ever wanted to do in a song. And I don't expect that anybody else will like this. Like this is <laughs> like it's too good. It's no, well, no, like I, yeah, I just like, if it's something that I really like, then I don't know. Like, right. No, I, I'm not, I, I agree. Yeah. So, um, I kind of let it go. And when, at that point was still recommending to her to the, like all these other producers and all these other ideas. I was just saying like, I just want to help you and be a part. Um, but then we wrote three or four or five more songs. And once we got to that stage, we played it for her management and they said, this is great. You need to go and finish this. Don't worry about the label. You guys just go and do your thing and we'll turn it in. Which, as you know, in the music industry is just kind of unheard of, where you're just allowed to go and do what you do and, and hope for the best. Oh, I bet you think you're John Wayne Showing up and shooting down everybody Your classic So the management was actually what drove that because they loved those songs so much. They just said they wanted you to produce because there was a chemistry going on and it was it started with the songs. Yeah, yeah, and we had like four or five songs at that point. I mean, it was just a dream. I mean, like the whole time looking back on it now, I mean, I don't think we could have uh, anticipated that, that it would have been received the way that it was, but 
but we were having the best time ever, which is further, which is further. Yeah. Like it's, 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 um, confirmation that that's what I look for when I'm making music is like, I hate to reduce it to fun because fun is such a cheap word in some ways, but, um, but it's true. It's like, if you're not having fun, then I don't know what, what you're doing. So can you tell me a little bit more about how, like, let's take that song, Oh, What a World, as an example. Kind of walk me through how how that song came together, um, what each person of the three of you brought in, and then even how it came together when you went to start to record it, and the the, the melody, that descending line, yeah. and the, the, the Laurel Canyon kind of, it doesn't fit at all with the modern country thing it doesn't fit it's it's like on an island of its own so um just kind of walk me through from the songwriting process through making that track kind of how that how that happened um what i remember is that daniel had um kind of a chord progression that he had uh come up with before we started that day and then casey's always been really good about having a lot of titles and Oh, What a World was a title that she had. And kind of the way that we started to really find our groove was like, I'd be sitting at the computer and I'd be kind of getting some rhythms and some chordal things kind of based around what Daniel was playing and based around what she was saying. And the next thing you know, we have this like living organism that's just kind of spiraling into a song. It, and it was pretty basic. I mean, like I just had kind of a um, a drum machine loop and an acoustic, you know, kind of chord progression. She had the idea for the vocoder, but we didn't really mess with that until later on. And I don't know, it's hard to describe like our process because it just feels like we're hanging out. It just feels like people very casually shooting out ideas and then kind of joking about other stuff and then coming back to it and and at the end of the day, you have something and you say, well, we, we got a song. And I remember listening to it on I-65 on my way, my way home and saying, I love this. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if anybody else will like this, but, but this feels good to me. And then to skip forward to the way that it responded, you would think that that would give you all the confidence in the world to say like, well, you were right. Like you your intuition was right but it turns out like no amount of success can make you feel like you're always right so i'm <laughs> i'm in here i'm in here day in and day out just going i uh, i don't know i we'll see <laughs> like <laughs> it's not to be defeated about it but it's just it but it, it's elusive 
Well, isn't there also probably pressure, there's probably some of the same label people that say, oh no, that song's not a single. Oh, no, that song doesn't fit. Oh, it's it's got two, it's not country enough or whatever. Now they're probably the ones going, we need another, what, oh, what a world, right? Like give us another song like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's funny though, because, because we didn't really have like radio success with Golden Hour. It was more of, um, I don't know, uh, critical or global. It was a more of a moment. I don't know if I've experienced that as much as I oh, would have if if I had had like a you know top forty like number one or something like that, which I do want. Um, <laughs> I'll keep my ears open for you. Yeah, uh, and, I, and it's just the, I'll the, take the, I'll take I'll take one of those worldwide global smash critical everybody. Yeah, no one likes it, but everyone kind of songs. I'll do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So do you find that um, that this is changing the kind of work that you're focusing on? How does a hit like that alter your plans or does it? it well, it, de it definitely has opened up a lot of opportunities. And now that the, the trick is differentiating between opportunities that people are looking for name recognition or are looking for the actual like energy of me um, because it's easy to look at credits and say oh well this guy had, did album of the year like that's great uh, but what they don't understand is that I'm just one part of the puzzle so you know I I have to work through that where I'm like I'm working with an artist for the first time and they may not even want their music to sound like Casey Musgraves but they just want it to be successful. So I am learning to um, sniff those those situations out. And if somebody's really excited about exploring and about picking my, my musical brain, then I'm interested. But if it's just uh, if it's just because it's like a kind of a flavor of the moment, um, I have to I have to politely walk away. You can't find it. In a store, if you try to hide it, it's gonna shine even more. Even if you lose it, it will find you. There's no way to stop it, but they'll try to run like a river, trying to find the ocean. Flowers in the concrete Climbing over fences 
So uh, getting ready to wrap up here, but one one thing that's kind of become the motto or so for me and for this relaunch of True Tunes that I'm doing is listening to better music and listening to music better. Because I think that when we learn how to listen to music better, like we were talking about with Graceland when we were kids, actually noticing the differences, the nuances, appreciating songwriting, appreciating lyrics, appreciating the art of it. When we listen to music better, then we tend to listen to better music. Mm. Um, you as an artist, as a songwriter, as a fan of this stuff, any uh, counsel for us uh, now that you're a, a wise old sage with all this experience about how to be better listeners and appreciators of music? Mm. I think maybe uh, it's about getting outside of yourself and not seeing, not seeing or looking for or where do I fit into this, but just what is this that I'm hearing? The, like, I think that a lot of times it's easy to try to, or we tend to say like, how does this relate to me? But I think that if you can get rid of that and say, what is this and let's examine it, um, then it opens your mind up to another part of yourself that you didn't realize that you had. Like. Um, there's probably a better way to articulate that, but like I, I'm thinking of the Fiona Apple record. Oh, it's fantastic, but there's not a lot for me to relate to. Like I don't, I lyrically, and there's a lot of jarring elements. But uh, instead of being like, oh, that's very different and it's very obtuse, and I don't necessarily know what she's talking about. I haven't had that experience. Instead of kind of like building that wall, leaning in and and actually spending more of a moment to say, what do I have to learn from this? And how can this change the way that I look at things? I will shine like the golden sun. I won't wait till the morning. I will soak up your every word, every page of your story. find now uh that you're this deep into your path that your faith your your spirituality is speaking into your work in new ways oh yeah i mean um i'm i'm feeling like uh i'm learning to be more honest with myself and um i'll leave it at that and uh Lastly, what would you love to hear coming from the next generation of young artists? Lyrically, musically, what are some things that would get you excited as a producer, as an artist, as a collaborator? What do you want to hear? Joy, optimism, and challenges. What do you mean by challenges? 
Mm. Like you, you mean all of those things at once? So, so talking about joy and challenges at the same time, is that what you mean? Possibly, or just things that, um, I would just love to be challenged by the things that I'm listening to. But I, I always want to hear joy and I always receive optimism. So, and it's hard to write about those things. So you're pretty young to have, to have hit some of the mileposts that you've hit. Do you, do you find yourself thinking, okay, now I've got a new goal. What are some of the goals that you set to keep things interesting for yourself? Wow. I mean, I feel, I, I just feel like I don't know anything, honestly. I, I feel like I'm just at the beginning and this quarantine has really, like I said, uh, highlighted that because I'm such a collaborator that like, I'm so used to leaning on engineers, other producers, other songwriters, editors, like artists, like all these people that I feel like I'm always a part of a, this blob. And now it's reduced to just like what I can do in this little space that I'm in and how well I can file transfer. And it's, it's, um, it's beyond humbling. It's, it, it's kind of like, I have to learn everything all over again. Um, so that's kind of how I'm feeling right now. And I'm trying not to, uh, absorb that as a negative feeling, but as a opportunity. Our thanks to Ian Fitchick for a challenging, entertaining, and yes, enchanting conversation. We had the choir's 1988 Chase the Kangaroo album on deck as side B of today's jukebox. But my quick chat with Steve Hindelong and Derry Daugherty yielded so many gems, we thought we'd save that for next time. For now, here's a little taste of that conversation. With Chase the Kangaroo, there was such a shift there into stuff that was both sonically and lyrically uh, in, invitational into an experience and less didactic, less narrative, less specific. And so we're talking about things being enchanting where you just here, come into this room and let's just have this experience. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I am going to kind of inspire you what to feel. I'm going to decorate the room in a certain way. Mm -hmm. That record to me feels like that kind of, that had that effect on me. What was going through your hearts and minds as you approached that record what allowed you what encouraged you to take those turns with chase the kangaroo in particular sonically musically and lyrically it was very experimental and it took a long time way longer than any other records yeah many months um we were just trying to learn how to write together and create still together Derry and me mm -hmm. and so we didn't always agree with everything and and the record label still thought we were going to have a producer. They thought we were doing demos. They thought we were doing demos. And we did the whole record basically as a demo. Mm -hmm. And then I think we almost we re-recorded a lot of it. We just we kept, did. We were trying to get it right, and we were very. I think we were just trying to make a record that we liked.
And as I get up on my soapbox this time, I'm thinking about this idea of enchantment and how it might apply to us as artists, especially artists whose work contains some kind of faith perspective. Obviously, enchantment is not a word I invented, but applying it to music that is not of the Disney princess variety might seem a bit odd. But hang with me here a bit and I think this will make some sense. Guy Kawasaki is most often called a business guru when he's out speaking and selling books, but I think there's more to him than that. He was part of the early team at Apple Computers, and he developed some really important ideas about what he calls enchantment. He talks about it at length in a book called, yes, Enchantment, that he put out about 10 years ago. He defines enchantment as, quote, delighting people with a product, service, organization, or idea. He goes on to say that, quote, the outcome of enchantment is voluntary and long-lasting support that is mutually beneficial, end quote. I met Guy at the South by Southwest conference in 2011 after he gave his keynote address. While his general focus was on how business people and marketers could use the ideas of enchantment to realize success in the marketplace, I suggested to him that it seemed to me that what he was getting at had some pretty biblical roots. He looked up at me when I said that and smiled. Like Jesus calling the disciples, he asked. Guy and I chatted about how this idea of enchantment really is demonstrated by Jesus throughout his ministry. I mentioned the story of him calling fishermen, Peter, James, and John, with the invitation to become fishers of men. And he mentioned the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't have much time to talk, but the few minutes we did have really got me thinking. Writer and blogger Lori Ferguson Wilbert recently reminded me, via her blog, about Madeline Langle's excellent admonition from her book, Walking on Water. Langle says, quote, We do not draw people to Christ by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it, end quote. Langle may best be known for her novel, A Wrinkle in Time, which some criticized for containing too much of her faith, while others, especially those from the Christian community, wanted it to be more evangelistic. Langle was willing to exist in that tension, telling great stories well and letting the chips fall where they may. In another place in Walking on Water, she dropped a bomb that has stuck with me for decades. Quote, if it's bad art, she said, it's bad religion, no matter how pious the subject. Wow, bad art is bad religion. Life is too short for bad religion, isn't it? But if it's good art, if it's enchanting and pulls others into the story, just think of the adventure we might start. Okay, I'm climbing off my soapbox. And before we wrap it up, I really want to thank our sponsors at visiontrust.org. Vision Trust is hard at work, coronavirus at all, in 14 countries around the world, providing food, medical care, and education and love for children in great need. As precarious as many of us feel these days, please know that for many people, not knowing where your next meal is coming from is a permanent problem, and food insecurity and hunger is mounting globally in catastrophic ways due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Vision Trust was on the ground before the disaster, through this disaster, and will be after. If you would like to find more information about how you could change the world for one little boy or little girl by supporting the work of local servants who know exactly how best to help them, visit visiontrust.org today. If you do end up sponsoring a child, please drop me a line and let me know. Thanks.
That'll do it for this episode. Please make sure to leave us reviews wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts if possible, and tell your friends. Also head to truetunes.com and sign up for our email list for a chance to win some of the cool stuff we offer from time to time and to make sure you don't miss our articles and news. And do not forget to follow and listen to our weekly Spotify gallery stage mixtape. All of this information can be found at truetunes.com, including links to these excellent artists. True Tunes Podcast is produced, engineered, and edited by Bruce A. Brown. Yes, that Bruce A. Brown. The contents of the podcast are protected by U.S. copyright law and are the intellectual property of Gyroscope Productions, with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials. Everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions. The program is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Gyroscope Productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or P.O. Box 60401, Nashville, Tennessee, 37206. And if this is your first time joining us for the podcast, welcome. I hope you've enjoyed your stay. We have several previous episodes for you to catch up on, including our conversation with Grammy-winning producer Charlie Peacock, guitar legend Phil Keggy, gospel rock pioneer and music industry legend Eddie DeGarmo, indie artist Krista Wells, NF and film and TV music producer Tommy Prophet, artist, producer, and filmmaker Steve Taylor, and much more. Dive on in and catch up. Until next time, this is JJT saying get out there, safely of course, and enchant. Make something beautiful. When you find something beautiful, talk about it, celebrate it, support it. The ugly stuff has had its day. Time to turn the page. See you soon. <laughs>